I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hello, rare friends. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so happy that you're here. I have a fun, different episode today. I'm joined by two authors. Not just any two authors, but two rare mama authors. My first and co-host for the show today is my friend Patty Hall. You might remember her from episode 33, where she talked about her memoir called Loving Large. It's a story about her experience raising her son Aaron, who was diagnosed with a rare disease called agromegaly, also known as gigantism. It's amazing. Definitely check it out when you're finished with this episode. She and I are talking with another rare mama who released a book called Raising a Rare Girl. And it's about her daughter, Fiona, who has Wolf-Hirschhorn syndrome. So much of her book resonated with me, especially the beginning where she was talking about the feeding, just the moment to moment trying to get your kid to eat stuff to what the big words are that are scary that you might have some sort of ableism towards in the beginning when you get out on this path. So I know that this book is going to resonate so much with so many of you. So definitely go and find it. The links will be in the show notes. And we're just going to dig into it. And we have a lot of questions about it. And I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. So without further ado, please welcome my lovely guests, my friends and authors, Patty Hall and Heather Lanier. Hello, Patty. Hello, Heather. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have both of you on. We're changing things up today. So this is exciting. Thank you, Abby, for having me. This is great to be here with you guys. This is great. Yes, I'm in the presence of two of my favorite authors and fellow rare moms who've shared their journeys in their own memoirs. You've heard Patty's episode way back. I'll link it in the show. But we thought it would be super fun to start collecting a couple of these rare books and chatting about them every once in a while on the podcast. So Heather's our first guest. Oh, I'm glad to be your guinea pig. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) I know a lot of my listeners have read your book, Raising a Rare Girl. If you haven't, links for that will also be in the show notes. It's an amazing book. And oh my gosh, you're going to see so much of your own journey in Heather's book. So let's dig in. Heather, give us a little synopsis of your memoir that you released. Yeah, I, I start the book on page one talking about this like phenomenon that I call the super baby, which is this pressure in pregnancy culture to make like some what I call the super baby, like to create this totally healthy a prenatal environment. And it's all really encouraged by both medicine and the culture at large. So I write about that for a few pages and then get to my daughter's birth. Fiona is her name and she was born really small and nobody knew why, but everyone was real, real concerned about it. So I was just like really excited that I had 
given birth to a human being, you know, like a, a human came, I'm a person and a person came out of me. Like, that's amazing. And like, shouldn't there not be confetti falling all around the hospital room? And instead, there was just so much fear. And it was because she was so tiny. So she was four pounds, 12 ounces and born full term. Flash forward three months and we learn that she's got this one in 50,000 person syndrome that's a genetic deletion. So on her short arm of her fourth chromosome, she's missing some genes and that creates this constellation of symptoms. So the first half of the book, or part one, I'm like writing about processing that, writing about the messages I'm getting from other people about what that means. What does it mean to have a kid whose trajectory of development is totally thrown into question? And what does it mean to have a kid who likely won't be living on their own, you know, and will need care in some way? And then kind of wrestling with my own beliefs about what that had meant before having Fiona and realizing that like my own sort of inner ableist demons I needed to face in the first year. The second part is a lot about her becoming who she gets to be. You know, how do, how do we advocate? How do my husband and I advocate for her? How do we give her language in alternative ways? How do we kind of help her carve her way into the world just as she is? I love the line that you come to and you had some brilliant one-liners. I'm going to quote you back to you, not just because I'm because I'm the memoir geek, but because as a mom in the subject area, you hit it with such eloquence. And there was early on in the book, you talked about cultivating okayness getting okay with who Fiona was. And nothing is more telling, I think, than much later in the book where you have this encounter with the mom in the, in the playground, who happens, the grandmother, I think it's the grandmother in the playground who has the child who's just, just come through cancer, just been cured of cancer. And we sit here as rare moms knowing that we gave up on the word, that C word, the cure, a long time ago. I mean, that isn't even enter into something that may be genetically explicable, may not be genetically explicable. But in my son's case, there are a couple of explanations, but it's so uber rare that it doesn't explain him. And Effie can speak to Ford's case on that. But I'd love to hear you talk about getting to okayness for yourself, but then still, as we all do, encountering the stigma from uh, the stigmatic reaction from everybody else. It was just genetically situated, like it was embedded in who she was. It's a great gift and acceptance. And then also I, talk, I write about this in the book, like meeting with the geneticist, this woman who's a doctor and an assistant to like the lead expert of the hurt of Fiona's syndrome, which is called Wolf-Hirschhorn syndrome. Fiona was a year old when we met with her and we met with her at the big conference for kids with or people with her syndrome. You know, she sat down with us and said, Fiona was getting like extensive, not, ex it wasn't extensive for her. She just had to get a little, a swab and we got um, a micro array. So we could just figure out which genes specifically she was missing for future predictions of health and concerns and things. So afterwards we met with this doctor, Amy Calhoun, and, and she said, do you have any questions? And I said, of course, still had that lingering mom question, like, how does this happen? How does this happen? And she just explained meiosis to me, like cellular meiosis and how it's this totally kind of randomized, risky process where I don't ever remember this, right? I always have to reread the process. But essentially, she like took her fingers, her index fingers and wrapped them around one another like snakes 
and said like when chromosomes are like swapping in the process of conception or like in cellular and in, in like sperm and egg creation, these strands stick together and then rip apart to create like the most randomized version of all of your ancestors' genes. And in the process of that, she's like little bits of de- genes get stuck. Uh, so you, you get additions and little bits of genes get deleted. So you have deletions and we all have them. We all have additions and deletions. Usually they're just not visible. So you know, she's like, and Fiona's are visible. We can tell that she has it because of these, you know, she, she has these different expressions of her body. So in that moment, like to me, genetic deletions and additions were a part of creation. That was huge in my sense of acceptance. Sure, Rafi, you were like me. I was jumping up and down with your language when you were at the playground because physical stigma has become my passion in the rare space. I have a seven foot tall son, so this comes up all the time. But when you looked back the second time and said something about, it's not about a cure, and then you tell us later on the diagnosis is a gift, but you say, this is how she was designed. And I just felt like that was as, that was as perfect as throwing um, religion and spirituality in someone's face as it was asking them to reconsider the language of cure. You know, this is how my girl was designed. And that's something I know that we all share is our kids have, they just are built the way they're built. And your most poignant line in the book is the point of this life is love, right? We don't see it anymore. I don't see any of it anymore. I laughed at a picture taken of me with my son on the weekend and um, we were wrestling, <laughs> which basically means I'm like this around his waist, right? Like holding on onto his waist. And somebody said, look at the difference between you two. And it was, I haven't seen it in years. It's funny that you bring that part of the book up because last night I was telling it to my husband and I was like, and she just kept turning around and saying, it's how she was designed. And I was waiting for her to tell the lady to F off. I was waiting for like her to just snap. And, you know, especially like when you had this moment with her where you felt like, oh, we are the same. You have a sick kid. Like maybe we have this common ground. And then it almost wasn't there. You stuck to your core, you know, how you how you think about Fiona and how you live with Fiona and that this is who she is and she's perfect the way she is. Instead of getting triggered and having to feel like you had to admit something or give her an answer that would make her feel better. I thought that was really incredible that you were able to still just remain there on your two feet and and leave the situation without, I don't know, buckling. I wonder if part of it is like, okay, I'm going to write about this later. So there will be redemption. (laughs) There will be redemption in the writing, you know? Yeah. So the story, yeah, is that this, this woman, this grandmother is pushing her son and she's staring at, she has been staring at Fiona the whole time and she's been giving us weird glares. And I know the feeling, we all know the feeling when our kid is being looked at as an object, stranger concern, but it's not really concern. And we don't quite know what, do we? I mean, again, just to interject this is that um, she immediately exclaimed when Fiona came into the playground, look at how tiny I think that little girl was. Whereas, you know, for Ford, it might be something else. For my son, Aaron, it would be something else. But the reaction would be a visual, would be visually stigmatizing. Size, hair color, flailing limbs, uh, the way Aaron moves, all those things. So what did you think it, what did you think it was? And then what do you think it ended up being that she was really looking at? I mean, it's like all the sort of markers of disability for Fiona. So it's like a, a, a skinniness, which for a long time, people were wondering, are you feeding that child? You know, and Fiona can eat the same amount of tacos as me, and I can eat a lot of tacos. So 
<laughs> so and then and then it was you know she's got she's got motor patterns that she's worked really hard to get they indicate that there's like there's just a way that she kind of brings her one foot behind her so things like that are what the woman probably saw just like body mass index and you know like a, a gate a walking gate that indicated something so at first I was like, ah, oh, this, you know, this lady's here and she's objectifying my kid. Now I got to deal with it. We're trying to have fun. And then when they came over to the swings, she was, you know, then I heard, oh, you've got, you know, got an appointment and, you know, like this references to hospital land. And then my heart softens and I'm like, oh, we're on the same team. You know, we're just, we're just both humans together trying to get through difficult things. And you love this child and I love my child. And we both get to go to hospitals and deal with the fact that bodies give us lots of, uh, Lots of questions. He just beat cancer, she told me. And I was like, well, that's great. Um, you know, my child has this thing, this, you know, this syndrome. Well, how do you cure that? You know, it was just, and for me, I guess I just have like, I just realized that that is, that is the water that we are swimming in culturally. And so to blame the one person who has that sense that like cure is the narrative of disability, it just feels I guess unfair to blame the single person. We get fed that narrative all over the place. We see it in movies. If you don't have like the cure story, where is your redemption? Is that Canadian as well? It's definitely American. It's definitely, that's something I think that is, uh, we share so much together. And I think culturally, that's one of the things we're not different enough. I wish, I wish we were, I wish we could say we, we handle it better, but we don't, or I wouldn't have so much to say about it. That's for sure. You know, I love the way you said cure is not the narrative of disability. But, you know, for me, I think what I love is that loving the individuals that they are makes us take cure off the table anyway. Yes. Because we're in the space with them, loving them wherever they are in this health odyssey that they're on. And I had a moment at some point where someone said to me, I went back to the children's hospital that had, in fact, scared me the most when my son was first diagnosed because they treated him like a circus freak. And I went back there years later and Effie will know this from my book. And I went back and everybody said, what are you going back for? Like, what are you reliving that for? Like, you know, you can't make them well and you had bad experiences there. And it was like, no, because I can go back now because we made it, we made some part of it through. But it's also that cure, I think for some people means you get to tie it up in a nice tidy bow. And our books don't do that, Heather, and our lives don't get those. My kid didn't get one and he's he's in his 20s. You know, your kids aren't going to get them either. And we are good with that now. But, you know, to make everybody feel included, maybe Effie, you could say what it was about the early diagnosis that felt familiar for you, because I think you've got a ton of listeners who are really needing support around how to endure that getting okay with learning what your child has. Whereas mine happened when my kid was many, many years later, it was happening when he was a child or a young child. I just didn't know it. I thought he was just oversized, right? The exact opposite to your experience. And I don't know, Effie, I felt when I was reading part one of Heather's book, I wondered how much of that really called out your own story and the one that you hear from so many listeners. Everything was the same to the weight that Ford was born with, to the not drinking, to the failure to thrive, to the doctor that said retarded to me. I know you didn't have that experience. And I was like, good for you. But like every little step in the thing that happens, I think, in so many of our diagnostic journeys, it was just there. And it's so disturbing to me how common the process is in a trauma way for our families. Mm, yeah. And how 
us as parents aren't necessarily like nurtured in this and that we're just given these facts and, you know, maybe we're at an appointment with a doctor who's not great. And those are the moments that get seared into our brains for a while and kind of set us down a notch, right? And like kick us off our ladder. And, you know, like you said, right when Fiona was born, you were like, where's the confetti? Even though you know something might be wrong, but like that didn't compute to you until someone told you it should. And then you were like, oh yeah, it should. I loved how you said like, my body just made a human being. Like that was no made smaller. And then, you know, for me, I almost saw this pathway of stones in the language that was applied to our children. Certainly you guys, so it was a, you know, there were your your rugged GP who has, you know, good languaging around this. Then you get the blunt pediatrician and we've certainly all had those, but I loved how it went and landed on. So extraordinary is always my word, but you had special, you had so many words applied to Fiona and until they resonated for you, you didn't get okay with it. And Effie didn't either. I never got okay with people making fun of giants around my my kid. So that's that's ongoing for us. It's really apparent in your book how intentional you are. You know, like you're intentional about the goals that you have set for Fiona and for your family and just for how you wanted this all to look. And you did it so early, I feel like. I feel like sometimes so many of us feel stuck for a little longer or a lot longer and kind of grieve what's happening. Felt like a long year though, so... (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just want to know, like, how did you do it? Like, what were the bright spots that you were hanging on to that was like really helping you get to that point of just beautiful acceptance? She would just bring the light, you know, into the room. And so she was a pretty chill, kind of not hugely emotive baby compared to other babies. Like that all kind of came slowly. But her eyes were just lit up with attention. Her eyes... I think they kind of grounded me and kept reminding me that when someone would say something or make me feel something like my kid, like if anyone made me feel like she was broken, I would return to her, her, you know, and look at her and still see like, this is the most miraculous being in my life. And that, I don't, I think that just helped like to just return to what I knew to be true about her to like letting her bring in the light I mean, parenting is hard no matter what. Like, it's like early, especially early parenting, the the feeding. I mean, she needed a lot of uh, feeding support. Uh, We spent sometimes 8 to 12 hours a day just making sure that she could orally eat. And that just became the goal. Like, we were considering a G-tube. I knew that that was a possibility. And I thought that was a, I affirm the lives of people, you know, who eat by G-tube. But I also was, you know, she could eat orally. So just like to keep helping her do that. All that was really hard and like drudgery, not, not like, not, not special, not exciting, you know, but still, yeah, I think we're returning to, returning to the thing that I knew to be true about her, which is that she was still amazing, even with all the noise around her. Luminous, right? You know, I I hear this expression. I mean, I say this to Effie about Ford all the time, that there is a spectacular energy in Ford. And I I wonder if this is true. And it makes me think of Andrew Solomon's book, Far From the Tree, about how those of us with children who are exceptional in some way hesitate to recognize it because we think it's our parental instinct that, oh, of course he's lovely. Of course she's lovely. But, you know, I hear people say it about my son all the time. The quote is always, he's larger than life, but it's that there is something spectacular in these children. And I've had to choose to believe that. And I think that made me fall in love with the rare world and every child in it because of that. But 
And I wonder if that's something that we offset. I'll explore this someday in an essay, but I mean, they are just spectacular. I mean, like Fiona is luminous. She really is. And I love that you told the story of, of um, Sarah Johnson in your book, if I can segue over to that. This is in what, it's still in part one, I think, but you know, Sarah Johnson, and I guess Justin tells, your husband Justin tells a lot of the story of how Sarah was profoundly disabled, but yet was, I think what he said was, she's sentient, Justin said. She's capable of enlightenment. And to him, that was the measure of a human. And we have so much talking about what the definition of of a human is. I mean, we're not talking about the value of a human. We're down in your book talking about the definition of a human. And you go through the history of disability, you know, being declared different ways throughout history. And I found it so profound that you brought us right back to a child whose mother incorporated her into the daily life of a monastery and she taught in her own way. And that uh, that will stay with me forever. The acceptance road, it helps to have a former monk as a spouse. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I was wondering if that helped. For sure. <laughs> My husband was a, both a Trappist, which is like a Catholic monk, and also a Zen monk. So he is trained in both traditions um, and, and he meditates, you know, every day. So, and when you meditate, you're supposed to practice uh, uh, you, well, there's a sort of surrender that you practice. It's like release to what is. Um, and yeah, that definitely helped because he would say things like that. Like I would say, oh my goodness, what's going to happen to our daughter? And he would say, she's sentient. She's capable of enlightenment. This is amazing. And then he said, which made me laugh out loud, you know, some of the sharp, best Zen masters weren't exactly the sharpest tools in the shed. <laughs> <laughs> The nice. idea like just, you know, being smart doesn't get you very far sometimes in the world of enlightenment. And for my husband, like that's the measure of life. Like life is about realizing something, like opening up to like the reality of all things or like a oneness with God. There's there's many ways of wording it depending on what your tradition is, but that's his mark of, of a good life. Not like getting married, getting a law degree and having getting your BMW or whatever. So it was helpful. It's helpful to have that kind of partner and uh, or to bring to bring that kind of that kind of expectation to a life or just to be like, it's already there. It's already all there. All the ingredients are already in her life. Without all the dirty words that we hear in the medical sphere all the time, like deficit and disability and um, all of the can'ts and won'ts. And in my case, the comorbidities and the life expectancies and those sorts of things that now come up a lot as my son ages. You know, those are the things that that get talked about openly in doctor's offices now. And we could have a talk here just about doctors. And Effie, if you're ever game, it would be really good to talk about how to deal with the medical conflicts. But, you know, here's what something that I loved is so here's your husband being like, I'll just say Zen in quotes, but you know, I mean, big, big Z Zen, big Z Zen. And you're trying to deal with things like the medical system therapeutically deciding how your child will be treated, what Fiona has access to. So I love that moment where you're in Vermont and you say, you say in the book, like in Vermont, they see her strengths. She has that first visit from a therapist who's comes in bright eyed, not demeaning to Fiona at all. And you, I think you said you got five times more therapy made available for her in Vermont than you did in Ohio. So we all know that this is true. Where you live means everything for what you get. If my child had not been born in Canada, he would not have found treatment as quickly. We couldn't have afforded it. I couldn't have had access to the doctors and the world expert happened to be 20 minutes away. So I thank geography every day. But for you, that has meant everything for Fiona, right? That has meant everything. 
Yeah. So we moved from Ohio to Vermont when she was about 13 months. And it was just amazing to like break out of the shackles of the Ohio therapists who were always bringing like concern into the room, but not a whole lot of expertise. They were just bringing like various things they felt like I should be worried about, but not really good like ways of dealing with that. Or God, it was just, so I just left these therapy sessions sometimes wanting to cry, but having like a little baby and feeling like I couldn't or um, yeah, just feeling like burdened with their sense of not meeting the milestones. And we don't know what's wrong. And this like this sense of something wrong, 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 even though we had a diagnosis, even though there was like, there was an explanation for her delays and her different development, the difference when that speech therapist walked into the room. And that's what I look for. And I think a lot of listeners probably do too. You immediately see how does this expert engage with my kid? Like, instantly like how do they say hello and do they even say hello or they look at me first i love the moment when you already knew and effie and i said this before we logged in today it's like we know what our kids are saying so for me it's reading body language and there's a lot of body in my son's case to read you guys know and i see effie do this with ford all the time she knows what he's communicating it doesn't have to be in a language of any kind including asl yet but you have to know, and we're desperate to know, aren't we? We're desperate to know what communication is happening. But when you had that speech pathologist, or I think it was a speech language therapist that came in first and said, she's talking to you, she's communicating with you, and all the lights went on, and then you went straight for finding her yes, and straight for finding a communication system that would be unique to her. And for me, that is the glory of the book, right? Is that one thing becomes so key to her interaction with you in particular, but with her whole world. And who doesn't love the moment that she goes to school and her little friends say, hi, Fiona. Oh my God, I know. So right. (laughs) Yeah, I was like taking notes, moved to Vermont. And yeah, that speech therapist in the, oh my God, you know, like the heavens angels are singing. That's Tracy Locker. Tracy Locker actually (laughs) moved to Pennsylvania. So she's she's an amazing human being and she's in PA Mm. somewhere. But yeah, like the non the nonverbal language, the non-speaking language, it's it's amazing, right? Like what's interesting is that now that I can speak that language and I can do that with Ford, I can do it with everyone else's kids who don't speak. I can understand what those kids are saying. So why aren't people who aren't parents to kids of nonverbal kids necessarily picking up this language as well? Because it's clearly a language, because I understand kids that aren't mine that are speaking to me without words. Wow. Yeah. When did you realize that? You know, hitting certain things where I'll go to events where there's a bunch of other kids like mine, you know, and I'm obsessed with kids anyway. So I'm always like, hi, buddy, you know, but then realizing that, oh, I can, you're making this gesture or you're pointing or you're looking this way or I'm feeling your energy. Like, I don't know what it is, but I can understand you. Like I can go, oh, you want the ball? No problem. Like I can figure it out just by... I don't know, paying attention. Yeah. Or maybe it's some like sixth sense that you grow just because you're practicing it. But that's something that I did want to know from your book. There was a lot of information that could shed light on our shared experiences, right? For our rare parents, like we all get it. But I wondered, did you get any responses from people outside of our world, outside of our network, who came back with like a deeper understanding or who felt educated or 
who took your book as a learning tool, as a disability as diversity tool, did you get that response from people outside of our life? I did. I love to get emails and notes from people who are, who are parents who say things like, thank you so much. Some people are really early on in diagnoses, you know, it, so it gives them like a maybe a roadmap of of acceptance and also a roadmap of like feelings that you're totally allowed to feel. Another really favorite email or, or even like Goodreads review or Amazon review or note is from the person who's totally outside the world of parenting a disabled kid. Um, it's just... It says things or the teachers who say, I thought I was open to my students, but I have a lot of work to do. Good. I think it's just as much of a resource for rare parents as it is for everyone else to learn about disability. And that's what we want to teach, right? Because we want it to be not even an issue when our kids go to class. We want it to just, this is who they are and this is how they come and they're awesome. And so are you rather than the glaringness of it all, right? Like just making it normal. Yeah. I was really proud and excited that you got to the point in your book where you got to the contrarians. And I think your publisher was probably pretty brave supporting you too, where you got to Dawkins and Zinger, Singer. And I'm glad that you took us into that because we can't lose awareness that that's a fight that is probably at the level the three of us are working at when we're not working on our own kids' advocacy. You took on that really dark shit that is underneath what we're all still dealing with and you kept it current. And I was so glad that you didn't press it to the outside. Thanks for mentioning that. The thing is, is each of our kids has got something physical in particular. I mean, come on, Ford and I share the hair gene. That's what we have in common. But you know, there's there's just that little something and I love unpacking the what is it that they think they see because it isn't our child that they see, is it? They don't see Fiona. They don't see Ford. They don't see Aaron. They see a feature, something that triggers for them. I wonder if the woman in the playground, if she didn't have a child in her life who had been ill, if maybe she would have just thought, oh, look at that darling little girl and her bigger sister in the park with their mom. I mean, if she hadn't had the heightened awareness to medical odysseys. Well, yeah, like even just a few weeks ago at the playground, there were these two little boys around Ford's age and they're being great and, you know, asked to push him around and race him around the around the playground. And the kid comes up to me and he goes, hey, why don't you just go get Ford two robotic legs so he can walk like us? And I was like, that's really cool, like imagination, buddy. But like Ford doesn't need those legs. He has legs and he works really hard on those legs, but he uses this wheelchair and that's how Ford gets around. Like. This is who Ford is. He doesn't need robot legs. Just put um, goats in front of him, we've learned. Put farm <laughs> yeah, animals in front of in him, him and he's got the core strength to stand yeah, up. Yeah, like, sure, I want him to get strong and not lose his bone density to cause those problems later on. But, like, Ford doesn't need robot legs so he can run around like you. There's <laughs> device central. Have you seen Ford drive his wheelchair? Wow. He's a wild, yes. he's a wild man. Ford's teaching these kids in the disability playground that he's got access to all the time. And Effie's great at posting that. And our kids are teaching us. That's, I think, ultimately what your book really brings through is that you're the one who did the learning. You said, I think you said you were more human because she was her. And I thank God for that every day. I mean, if if someone says to you, would you, would you take it all away? Would you wish for something different? I think the three of us would say no. And I think every rare parent listening to this right now says no. This is my child. We love her. And yeah, back to how lucky we are. Like, how did I not know this existed? How did I know these weren't sad, horrified families? How did I not recognize that the level of 
joy and full presence, like just being. How did I not notice that? Like, how is that hidden? How is it not taught to us? How is it? How are we not exposed to it? Because it's magnificent. And I feel like a whole entire country just opened that I have a passport to. Mm, Well said. I look at schools. I look at public schools. By third grade, I remember they were segregating us based on reading level. So it's like the best readers are in this class. The medium readers are here. The poor readers are here. And as I write about in the book, the kids with visible disabilities, intellectual disabilities, were in an entirely different wing. And we didn't see them at gym. We didn't see them at lunch. And I know it's different now that, you know, usually this, there's some effort. But barely. Yeah, but it's still mm-hmm. what kind, I'm not sure, uh, you know, they talk about, oh, well, they have specials together and they have lunch and recess. But uh, I, I'm, unless you're like, you've got a school that's really actively promoting inclusion and really values everybody at differing levels of ability, that sort of mixing doesn't necessarily equal the kind of like immersion. Yeah. You know, especially if medical, if the medical profession is allowed to provide too much advice on the educational sector, right? I mean, we all we all heard the dire diagnoses. We all heard, I can't tell you how many times I've said that Aaron's disease is caused by a brain tumor and they say, the, oh, you know, oh, does he have an impairment? Does he have such? And it was like, why is that the reaction? You know, the brain tumor should be, you know, scary enough. I feel like if the the dire diagnoses and all of those warnings that in particular you guys got when your kids were very young and I got when Aaron was in his early teens, you know, the warning of he will never, she will never, they will never this. And in fact, what child doesn't defy those absolutes? So what the hell are we using the absolutes for anyway, anymore? Like, let's get our let's get our kids on a continuum that has just their name on it. This is what Fiona yeah. will do. Fiona's doing this and and Ford's doing it every day. So there is no generalization when it comes to rare kids. And I'm so tired of them being forced into categories based on historical accuracy. I mean, some of these diseases, I mean, your kids' diseases are in the rare, I mean, there are less than 300 people, kids right now in the world with Aaron's disease at any given time. And how do you generalize about 300 people? I mean, that's not even good scientific method sample size. Yeah, I really loved in your book how, you know, your level of acceptance and how you were talking about measuring our kids' worth on a growth chart just needed to be burned in hellfire. And I loved that (laughs) transformational period because I remember when I stopped even filling out those forms that you have to fill out every time you go into the doctor of all the checkboxes that your kid's doing and not doing. And I remember just going, I am literally never filling this out again. Don't give it to me anymore. Yeah, it's so liberating when you can talk back to those forms. Like when I can circle yeah. things and be like, we don't use those these terms anymore. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you go into knowing more than the doctor and we all know what this is about. So just like we all speak our kids' own language, we all and have hit that. So first of all, we go through the early diagnosis where there are all of these ominous symptoms are pulled out. And then don't we all go down the Google trap? And we all probably fig- started to figure out what our kid was dealing with when we went down Google. But then at some point, we know them, the stats, other kids with the disease, other parents teach us little bits here and there. We have 20 specialists apiece, so we learn more than them. And I wonder, did you each have a moment where you realized that the experts were coming to you for advice when the table turned? There was for me that I write about this moment where Fiona has a fever and she's not well. And and I'm also wondering if we need to see in a, like some kind of immunity expert or an expert in the immune system immunology right yeah immunology um and i'm waiting for the doctor to like come around yes 
to that conclusion, but he won't do it without affirming what I just said through literature. So he breaks out this giant book of like, I forget what it was called. You probably might remember, but um, yes, it had malformations in the title and he's like, okay, looking through it. And he's like, W E, he can't spell the syndrome. Uh, and I, I, this doctor, you know, you need a good doctor. And this doctor had been a good doctor. It was very on top of, of things in ways that I was not like, he was just, uh, very good at remembering what was the next test we needed and just to keep track of her overall health picture. So, you know, it's like you need people on your team. But uh, also, you know, I'm like, at that point, I am now spelling the syndrome for him. And then, you know, he finds, he's, oh, here it is. And he reads and it doesn't say anything about the immune system. He's like deflated that the big book of malformations can't tell him what I already know, which is that sometimes kids with this syndrome need some immune support or need to think about the fact that they could be immunocompromised. <laughs> Maybe that was the moment that he learned to trust me a little bit more because uh, he did say to me, he actually left that practice when we were also moving from Vermont. And he said to me, thank you for all that you've taught me. And he had never mm. said that before. How about you, Effie? Yeah. And I, I think it's also just kind of going through the motions, right? And firing the people that aren't serving you and finding the doctor that will listen to you and holding on to them tightly. But I think that's one of the things, right, is knowing that you have permission to move on and that you don't have to go to that appointment and that doctor. You can keep asking. You can keep banging down the doors until you find someone who will actually sit with you and go, okay. And then, yeah, I think that now, especially, I don't know what kind of movement is happening, but I do feel like a lot of the doctors in the rare disease space are coming to the table and looking at the families as part of the team and saying, like, what are your patient advocacy groups? saying in in the room, I know there's only 200 of you, what's happening with head size or, you know, whatever. And I feel like they're asking me more just in the last year than they ever were before. Yeah, that's good. When it comes to this whole realm, I have done things I never knew that I would do, like fire people. Yes, and that's there's the unifying <laughs> feature right there. Is, totally. And I joke about, you know, my Canadianness and my my third oh, childness and my time with your right. I'm I'm like I always tone it down. Like I've always said, like I don't even jump the queue at the grocery store if I have two items. But I remember the first time somebody pointed their finger, stared, and went, "Oh my god!" when they saw my kid. And I confronted them publicly. I confronted a man in a wheelchair publicly and said, like, you are reacting to someone who looks different. Like, isn't this the world that we all inhabit? And but I would never. And, and I remember Aaron begging me not to because he had witnessed the change in me. And he was a young, you know, he was a teenager by then, but he was witnessing the change in me saying, mom, please don't. I don't need you to do that. And I said, no, there are some things that are just unconscionable now. But I would never have spoken out. I would never have fired a doctor. And I did. I fired many doctors. And I wrote many letters that I would never have and many emails asking for help that I would never have asked for help for myself. Yeah, I do think that the rare disease life has been something that has broke those systems of even just being a woman, right? A polite pleaser, uh, easygoing. I talk about that a lot and how that just like had that person had to go because I can't get anywhere with her anymore. And it's not serving me. 
And it never was actually, but it's like, we grow up like that, right? We grow up as women kind of taught that about our demeanor and about our characteristics and what's appropriate. And it's freeing to just shed that. There's a cost, isn't there? And maybe this is where I'm the wise old woman here. And the next memoir will be what the cost to me was. It's called Where, where To Next. There's a line, I think I quoted this, Heather, forgive me if I didn't, but you said, there's an exhaustion of being the counter argument to beliefs about disability being a lesser life. The goal is not to become undisabled. And that fight that presence that we take on. It is an additional persona. It's a suit of armor. It's a way of life for us that I'm in my 50s now. And it has changed the way I do everything. Because I, I say to Effie all the time, you know, I'm, I have so constantly patrolled the perimeter of my child and my children's life in defense or in preparation for the next disaster or the next phone call or a crap MRI or even when his medication doesn't work, that that has changed. Like our diligence becomes part of who we are, not just as mothers, but as women. And that's kind of exhaustion is why we need community, I think. And I have never had it. And I hope that, you know, we're, we're here opening the floor to other people to be able to say, oh, those women get what I mean. Or those moms or dads get what I mean, because it's a lifestyle now. It is not just part of my life. So there's this essay that I wrote called Out There, I Have to Smile in Long Read yes. uh, that I published a few months ago, um, where I, I basically tried to say everything I could about this like tension of being out in the world and trying to be a, this walking argument for my daughter's worth and how exhausting it is, but also how exhausting it is to have a kid who wakes up all the time, <clears throat> you know, <laughs> doesn't sleep through the night, which is why I can't remember things half the time. So that it all costs something. And to, to have to live in a world where we pretend it doesn't is, is also hard. I love what you're saying, Patty, about community can can pull us out of that. I'm sorry that you haven't found it yet, but virtual community is a thing too, you know? Sure. And, you know, part of it was, is the age of my child. But to respond to what you said, Effie will recall this, is that the sort of tearjerker part at the end of my book is that there's a letter my son wrote about how he felt about me writing the book. Because of course, you know, publishing takes a long time up and I'm a professional writer, been at this for my whole life. He turned the tables on me one day. This was how I figured out what it cost. He told me what he and his brother saw that it cost. And that was, that was the epiphany. So sometimes we can't see it. And it's always too early to do these wonderful recognition, reflection moments that we put in great memoirs. It's always too early to do that. But as with all things, I waited for him to tell me what he needed. And what he said he needed was for me to get a life. And um, that hurt, stung, and validated all of those things that you guys are still doing and you'll be doing for many more years like I've been doing for many years. So uh, sometimes the answer comes from outside of ourselves, I think. Oof, that last whole topic, we should have another topic on that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we we could do some serious talk about uh, about a lot of topics. This has been just a joy to speak to like-minded humans. I feel that taste of community today. So I'm thankful, Heather, oh, that your book too. was a catalyst for that. Yeah, so good to meet you both. Thanks for yeah. talking with me. <laughs> Literally anytime. I did just want to include one other line that I loved that you said in your book. You said, maybe we give up so we can receive something better than what our small minds had wanted. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that 100% is, <laughs> is what happened. Diagnosis is a gift, you said. The syndrome has looked like that has looked like something wrong, but it wasn't an attack. It was a tenderizer. And it 
it makes us live more tenderly, I think. And we found the best possible way to manage. And doesn't everybody say, how did you cope? What else is, what is, what else is there? We love our children. Thank you for sharing your book with us. Um, I'm looking forward to sharing this episode. Patty, Effie, it was so good to meet you. Thanks for having me. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people. And please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story, or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate you all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you. Ha 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 